unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, it's good to be back with you. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing all right. What are we going to be talking about today? Today, we talk about getting into your prospect's way of thinking. Nice. I can't wait. This is uh Oh, this is something that I personally struggle with, so I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm excited to jump into it. Well, a, a lot of people do. It seems like it should be easy. It's not. It's it takes time, but I'm going to I'm going to actually deliver some steps and some methods. But let me start by talking about my greatest all-time biggest hit as a copywriter. It was a direct mail letter for Abacus Travel Management, a company in Phoenix that generated the letter generated over $40 million in new business. And I wrote this pretty early in my career as a copywriter over 20 years ago. One of the biggest challenges I had was getting into the way of thinking that ran through my prospect's mind. Now, my prospect was an entrepreneur who had a successful company and bought a lot of travel. I'd never met anyone like that before at that time in my life. So it took a lot of research and a lot of mental effort before I could zero in on who this person was. Here's what I found out. Because they were so successful, nobody would cut them any slack. Everyone assumed the successful entrepreneur had no problems since it seemed like they had endless amounts of money and other people did all the work. <laughs> uh, the <laughs> yeah, the, the reality, of course, is quite different. These people worked harder than anyone else at their company. And what good was money if you didn't have any time to enjoy it? So after a lot of tries, eventually I came up with the perfect headline. The idea was, here you are, you overworked entrepreneur who everyone else wants something from. How would you like to get a first class vacation at rock bottom prices? And the, the pitch went on. The reason we, Abacus Travel Management, are offering this to you is so that we can give you a little sample of what we could do for all your business travel, not just you, but everyone in your company. And prospects loved it. Abacus had to stop mailing the letter, and they were sending them out in batches of 25 from a laser printer. They had to stop mailing the letter after a few weeks because they could not keep up with the demand for appointments. Now, here's the funny thing. Nobody actually took Abacus up on the vacation offer. but a lot of people hired Abacus for their companies. And here's what's important about that true story. A big part of success with that letter was that I was able to get in the prospect's way of thinking. I made them feel understood and cared about. That in itself was rare enough in their world so that they would ask for a meeting and my client was able to take it from there and close sales. And that is how valuable getting into your prospect's way of thinking can be. In this case, it was worth $40 million. What's crazy about that to me is it's so deep and it's so out of line with what everybody always says, push the benefits and, and um, get, the, get the offer right. And you hear these like templated things that obviously do work, but that right there, just cut straight to the heart of the issue of, of understanding how they're thinking. And for me, 
knowing that it was one of your very first sales letters just blows my mind. <laughs> Me too. I, I wish I could write a 40 million sales letter every six months. That'd be really great. <laughs> right. But um, I've done okay since then, but I've never hit that mark before. Or uh, no, I've never hit that mark since rather. Anyway, looking back at this 25 years later, I know that I was not unusual. Just like you mentioned, Nathan, I was not unusual in having a hard time getting into my prospect's way of thinking. And I know this because even the most talented copywriters I coach have problems with this at first. It's not something they teach you in school, you know, and I don't know anyone actually who teaches a system on how to do this effectively. So let's start that. Today I'm going to share some steps on how to do this. It will make your work a lot easier and your copy a lot more profitable. But first, I want to remind you of something. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing offers for highly regulated industries like health and finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review of what you write after you write it and before you start using the copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Okay? Okay. Okay. So now here are some tips on how to get into your prospect's way of thinking. First, everyone talks about getting into the conversation already going on in your prospect's mind. That's real easy to say, and that's right. But how do you do it? Well, it's not guesswork, and it's not magical intuition. After we go through these steps, you'll have a basis for doing so. But you've got to take the steps to have any hope of accuracy. Now, remember I said how I didn't know any people like my prospects? Well, I, I do now, and in some ways, I'm like one of those people. But the important point is I didn't then, so I had to find out about them. And even before we talk about what you need to find out and how you go about it, this brings up a really important point for most marketers and copywriters. Start with the fact that you are not your prospect, and that means it's incumbent upon you to find out who is. So now some steps. Start by finding out what are their problems and what frustrations are causing their problems. Remember how I said these recently successful entrepreneurs got no sympathy from anyone because almost everyone thought they had no problems? That in itself was a problem. And of course, it's bullshit to think anyone in the world doesn't have problems because everyone does. The key point here is knowing the problems they have is good, but it's only half of this step. The other half is realizing that problems lead to frustrations or they are caused by frustrations, which are obstacles, which gets in the way as a result of these problems or uh, causing these problems. It doesn't really matter which comes first. It's a chicken and egg thing, but understanding not only the problem, but those little frustrations, those obstacles, that will get you in a much better place for getting into your prospect's way of thinking. Okay? Yeah, it's like getting at a deeper level of what's going on. Yeah, it's it's starting to get into their life rather than just spattering out a bunch of benefits and an offer and a headline from a formula. It's it's actually getting into the psychology of the prospect. And so here's another step to take, and this goes even deeper. 
What are their values? Values are really crucial. And a lot of people just gloss over this, but it's not effective unless you're very, very much like your market. And like I said before, almost no one is their market, even if they think they are. You need to respect your prospects' values and sell to those values, even if you disagree with them or you may not disagree with them, but you may just look at the world differently, have different needs and preferences. Let me tell you about um, about something I did with Ann Sieg, uh, Renegade Network Marketer, and um, my experience with that in terms of different values. Now, I'm not fundamentally opposed to network marketing. I just don't like doing it. I've tried it a few times. It's not my personality. And so I had to conclude before I started this letter that I really didn't understand what was driving the people, what was deep in their hearts in the multi-level marketing space. And so I spent about three months interviewing people, getting the interviews transcribed. These were successful people who were good representatives of the kind of people that would be tr- that would be signing up for this mentoring program that Ann and a partner were going to do. And this was actually an upsell on a membership site launch, the letter that I wrote. It really paid off because we sold a million dollars worth in a one-day launch, a million dollars worth of this mentoring program. And um, they even melted the server. That's always fun, right? Uh, <laughs> So if, if, I, if I had tried to guess what the values of these people were, be different, but they really liked to be part of a cause. They really liked to be in a structured group, and um, they got a terrific sense of community from being in network marketing. And actually, the community was much, was more important, much more important to them than the achievement, than money, than self-expression. It was belonging to something they really believed in that was meaningful to them. So, you know, once I learned that, I didn't have any problem with it. It was just different than myself and most of the people I know. Do you mind if I jump in real quick? Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. That's something that I've noticed as well, is when people pitch multi-level marketing, oftentimes it's, Here's a product that sells itself. All you have to do is sign people up for it and you'll be making all kinds of money. And every time they sign somebody up, they'll be making all kinds of money. And for somebody like me, that's just totally unappealing. I don't want to get behind something that I don't fully believe in. But the people that I've noticed that really do uh, get energized and and, uh, are very successful in any kind of multi-level marketing, it's usually that exactly what you said. It's not the get people signed up and you'll make money when they get, when they get paid, which is how most people market their multi-level marketing, um, biz op. It's the, here's something that you can be part of. Here's a team that you can be part of. Here's a movement that you can be part of the people that buy into that. And the people that advertise that, uh, tend to be a lot more successful with whatever it is that they're marketing. Yeah. Um, and it's because they're appealing to the values of the people who are most likely to join and, and participate and, and recruit other people so that they can build the organization. So yeah, 
but it's it's always skimmed over. I I think you're the first person I've ever heard mention that as part of how to market a multi level marketing. Well, thanks. It it took me three months of intensive interviewing and analysis and thinking and checking out my conclusions with Anne, you know, uh, to 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 get to that point. It it wasn't easy. I mean, you know, the the whole idea of research and preparation and mindset and information mining is glossed over in a lot of copywriting training. Now, the best people do it and they do a lot of it. And and that's that's what we're talking about here. I don't think you have to spend three months on something all the time. But we were we were not only swinging for a home run, we were going for a grand slam and we got it, you know. Um, but you, you, you need to understand the values. So let me, let me move on to the next step. You also need to understand what your prospects are afraid of. And some people think, well, you know, real, real heroes don't have fear. That's not true. Even the bravest and even some of the most stoic people have fears. Most of them do. Now, it's true that people like that deal with their fears differently. They may not even express them. And it's also true that there is a very small minority of people who have no fears. Okay, but those people are off in the jungles with a government contract and sometimes no identification, you know, doing black ops jobs. I, I, I am serious about that, even though it sounds funny. Um, but for the most part, people do have fears. Um, of course, a lot of successful people act in the face of those fears or move through those fears, resolve them, and then develop new ones. The key thing is to see if you can figure out logically what those people would most likely have fears about. Any research, any conversations you have, add that in the mix. And you're looking for fears, especially in relation to your offer or your sets of offers. Now, this is especially for the zealots and the true believers and even or maybe especially for some of the visionaries out there. Here's a little friendly advice. If you have an idealized view of how humanity should be. And I'm not talking about the left or the right or the center. I mean, anything from, you know, an objectivist, a follower of Ayn Rand, to a leftist Marxist, to a middle-of-the-road person who has a very definite idea about how the world should be. Take note of that. And then set it aside. Uh, A lot of people with strong political, religious, non-religious spiritual beliefs have this kind of idealized view. And I'm not saying abandon what you believe, but it's really important to sell people where they are emotionally and experientially, not where you'd like them to be or the way you think it should be. Instead of being a zealot, be a curious researcher. Don't be a proud idealist. Be a curious researcher when you're doing this part of your work as a copywriter. So we've we've got um their problems their frustrations their values their fears and we're taking a look at cold hard reality as it is now we can get to it right now we can get to the conversation that's already going on in your prospect's mind 
I want to take a moment to point out how vitally important headlines are in copy. As you may already know, the strength of your headline accounts for up to 80 or even 90% of the effectiveness of your ad. Think about that. What if there were a way to shortcut the headline writing process and start a new headline based on a proven winner? Well, there is. It's all in my book called Advertising Headlines That Make You Rich. This book is available now on Amazon.com. Advertising Headlines That Make You Rich. What's unique about this book is it shows you exactly how to adapt a proven winner to your product or service. Because I show you 10 adaptations for each headline in different niches and explain the psychology of how to adapt a headline. Advertising Headlines That Make You Rich in hard copy and Kindle formats on Amazon. Now, back to our show. Now we can get to the conversation that's already going on in your prospect's mind. Once you have a sense of how they live their lives, what their values are, what they're afraid of, what they really want, and especially what their problems and frustrations are, then you have the building blocks for that conversation. So before we jump into how you get to that, how you're able to do that, because I personally believe that you're a master of this and I learned so much just from watching you, but uh, I, I wanted to ask your opinion about, is this just something that's naturally difficult for humans to do, uh, being empathetic? And then when I look at the way that uh, the media pits people against each other and the way that, the, that uh, political pundits and people like that tend to um, almost discourage empathy of, of uh, opposing opinions, it seems like we're almost trained not to be able to um, look at things from the other side or even, even go so far as um, it's a bad thing to be empathetic of opinions that go contrary to your own. Yes, I agree with you. Um, certainly the media, certainly the news, but really all forms of the media, popular songs are about conflict, not really about understanding the person who did you wrong. And movies are about conflict. And, you know, one of the things when you're writing fiction, you're taught is each character, even if they're the bad guy, they need to be presented as what they're doing makes sense to them and they think they're right. So in a way, um, you'll get that, but you have to do a lot of mental work to get that, to, to really unpack what you're seeing from the media. But I mean, also think about your family, your family, my family, uh, for the listener, your family, you know, did you sit around the dinner table and, um, you know, kid comes home from school and he just got beat up by this Cyclops giant and the, um, you know, mother says, well, let's try and figure out what was going on in his mind and why he did it. And the father says, well, I think we should examine his value. No, no. They say, all right, we're going to complain to um, the school about this. Or the father says, okay, you're going to take some karate lessons starting tomorrow. <laughs> I don't ever want you to get beat up again. Right. It's, it's just not the natural way of things. And, you know, even in my family where my mother was a psychologist and my father was a scientist, we didn't spend a whole lot of time analyzing people who were set against us, um, at, at least not in a very 
a positive, productive way. We, we were like every other family. We'd complain about things and have heroes and villains and, you know, in our little world and, and so forth. So it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like logical thinking. Logical thinking is not natural. Critical thinking is not natural. It's not the way the brain normally works. It has to be learned. It's incredibly valuable, but it it takes some effort. And it's not unnatural in the sense that it's going to hurt you or it's going to set you up against society. It's just that there are some skills. I mean, woodworking isn't natural. People aren't born with planes and saws in their hands, right? Um, you know, there, m- most things that we do require some learned skills and some adjustment from from the way we were um, brought up. And, of course, the same thing in school. We don't learn about this in school. And these days, schools are becoming big propaganda machines uh, more and more uh, in a very dangerous way. But, you know, propaganda is exactly the opposite. That's the idealism part that keeps you from thinking clearly about an individual. So, yeah, certainly the media, but the the whole society, I would say. And I would say in America, we have, you know, more tools and more people and more resources to learn this than just about anywhere else. And and maybe America leads the world in in marketing in some ways. I I shouldn't say that because I know we have a lot of listeners around the world, and maybe <laughs> your country's doing better, and I just don't know about it. So you know you can you can send in an email and and let me know. But, but um, it's, it's definitely a skill that is lacking in probably ninety nine percent of the population, but is incredibly vital to be able to write persuasive copy. Yeah, it it is lacking in most people. And it's not a lack of intelligence. It's like, where the heck do you learn this? Mm-hmm. You know, well, answer, copywriters podcast right here. But, <laughs> but right. this is only the first step. Then you have some work to do, you know? So how, so how do, let's, uh, let's get back on track. How do people go about getting this deep empathy and understanding of their market? Well, the first thing, and you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but it always surprises me. Uh, so many copywriters don't do this. They, they they have a theater in their mind, but they never go outside of their mind to talk to people in the market. Talk to them. Ask them questions and don't argue with their answers. Be curious. I mean, that's what I did with the sales letter for Renegade Network Marketer. I talked to people and I simply went there with a sincere desire to understand and a major attempt to not judge what I heard and just be supportive of hearing their answers and encouraging them to give me more ones. So be curious, seek out opinions, and respectfully appreciate what they say, even if you can't stand what they're saying, because while you may not like what they're saying, be appreciative. They're handing you gold. What about a lot of copywriters that I know are kind of um, introverted and they don't, the reason that they sell through writing is because they don't like going out and um, talking with, with people, talking with their market. How do, you, how do you recommend or have you ever dealt with that yourself and, and how did you uh, overcome it? 
it's never been a problem for me because um, while I'm introverted in a lot of ways, I don't have any problem asking questions. Remember, I started my career as a reporter. I grew up in a Jewish family and, you know, asking questions is sort of prerequisite to being fed. So, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I think one thing to do is if you're writing for a client, ask your client to give you permission and just set up a phone call. You know, introverted people, what they don't like is large crowds and lots of boisterous activity in a social setting as a general rule. They don't mind talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. In fact, they prefer it. And that's what you want to do. You don't want to do these big focus groups. You don't want to get on a stage in front of 500 people and, you know, have the audience shout out questions. You want to have simple conversations over coffee, over the phone, over Skype. So that's doable. Nice. That's very helpful. Okay. Thanks. And, you know, so <clears throat> the first thing is talk to people and just listen for these things. Listen for fears, values, frustrations, problems. And the second thing is read up, look at reviews on Amazon of similar products. Look especially for strongly held opinions and complaints. And here's a good test. If you see versions of the same comment, question, complaint more than a few times, that's a really good sign because that means it's most likely a widespread feeling in your marketplace. Then. The next thing is look at successful copy from others in your marketplace. Don't steal it. Don't plagiarize. Not only is that really bad form, but that can be very expensive if they take you to court. But instead, see how you can figure out what values, what fears, what frustrations, what problems, what desires in this copy is appealing, what it's appealing to. and then there's no law that says you can't appeal to the same basic values, fears, desires, problems, frustrations in your own copy. So that's about it. Unless you got a question. I don't, but I do. I just want to finish by saying I've actually seen uh, just recently on Facebook, I saw an ad from a company that I follow. And then I saw the exact same copy in an ad from another company that was offering a very similar uh, product, n not even just a, a swipe of, of concept, but word for word, the exact same copy. And the first thing as a copywriter and as a businessman, the first thing that I thought to myself was, why would I ever do business with somebody who just straight up steals somebody else's copy? Oh yeah. Well, if, if you know it, but you know, that second company, uh, doesn't know it yet, but they were making a significant, a substantial contribution to the intellectual property lawyers enrichment fund. <laughs> That's right. All right, David, this has been a fantastic episode. I've learned so much, just like every episode. What do we have coming up next time? Well, first of all, thank you for that. And secondly, what we have coming up is why people really buy. Awesome. I cannot wait. David, thank you so much for just dropping jewels and uh, copywriters out there. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes so you never miss an episode.